Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Michael Earlywine about the early history of astrology software programs. Michael's the founder of Matrix Software, which is one of the first uh, companies to produce astrology software in the world, and it was one of the most popular astrology programs for the first several decades. Uh, so hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me today. It wasn't one of the first. It was the first. The first astrology software company in the world? Yeah, there was no other that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, well, so let's talk about that. Um, maybe let's start with that time frame and then work our way backwards. If it was the first software company, roughly, when did you start the company? Hard to say. The name Matrix, yeah, became the company name, but it became the name that I used. I wasn't using the term matrix in its mathematical sense, defining a mathematical thing, but in its Greek origin, which went, which meant womb, that from which things are born. And I was aware that I was birthing a new astrology, not just a computerized astrology, but I have many other things we could talk about that I birthed that came directly out of my effort. Um, and right. so it wasn't concerned to me until sometime later that Matrix became the name of a company when I had to register with the state of Michigan. But that was, um, I don't know, some quite a few months later. And I basically began sharing programs in 1977. Okay. And I'm not sure exactly when. Um, it would be when I first could get a computer because uh, what I had was a Commodore PET 2000 was the name of it. Um, and then I soon had an Apple 2C or 2E or whatever it was and a Radio Shack machine. But to begin with, I was computerizing astrology for the first time. I don't think that I was the only person that was trying to program, but as far as I know, I was the only person that made programs and at first gave them away to my fellow astrologers. Other people may have been trying to make a business and being proprietary, but I'm kind of a child of the 60s. I, I wanted to share it and I did. And I shared programs for a long time. And back then there were no hard drives. There were no floppy disks. Everything was done on tape cassette, the same kind of cassette you record music on. And you had to tape them and you had to re rewind them and verify every byte to make sure there was no dropout. This took an enormous amount of time. And, and pretty, soon, um, yeah, pretty soon I was doing this and sending it out to people. Uh, and uh, also I was, talking with many different people. I can't remember exactly when I started Matrix Magazine, but Matrix Magazine was a magazine that had most of the more technical astrologers subscribed to it. And I think there was, I don't know, I'm not sure how many, maybe 13 issues or something like that. So I was busy sharing. I was, first of all, I was totally blown out by the fact that I could do this. Um, and that we could have a computerized astrology. And so all I wanted to do was to get it in as many people's hands 
as they possibly could, and they did. Anyone interested? What was the advantage? Or up to that point, everyone was calculating charts by hand, right? Exactly. So, and that's how you learned how to cal calculate. Birth I did it professionally. I was doing all the charts for Circle Books Metaphysical Bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My wife and I were. She has a wonderful hand to draw them out, and I was calculating them, and then she did too, uh, and drawing them out, and turning them into the store where people came and picked them up, and. Uh, so the chart calculation was a service just in and of itself? Yeah. I mean, that, that I was doing for the book. My brother Stephen started a, and his friend John Sullivan started a, the first metaphysical bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Circle Books. And uh, I helped them. I went in there and helped them rebuild the store. It was just a bunch of shelves. And I went in and helped them build it, the, a whole, the whole store in Redwood and with fish tanks and globe lights and stuff like that. It was a very beautiful store. A lot of that was my influence or certainly my helping them do that. I was like the older person. Okay. And so you'd been studying astrology for quite a while up to that point, or do you know, if, if we're talking about the late seventies, you'd been studying astrology for a decade and a half since around 1960. Well, late 50s and 60s, I was interested in astrology and studying it, but I was also studying the tarot, uh, the I Ching, Pythagoras. All, all, I was studying everything that had any spiritual, alter, alternative spirituality to it, other than the Roman Catholicism in which I was raised. Hmm. Okay, maybe we should back up. Do you, do you mind sharing your birth data? No, I was born on July 18th. 1941 at 5.03 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. What degree is your ascendant? About eight degrees Sag, Sagittarius. Okay. You disappeared. Can you see me now? So yeah. here's the, I'm just going to put the chart up on the screen. This makes me too light. I don't want to do this. Okay. Um, so I know I'll my just, chart. You you I'll look just, at my chart. You can mention something, but I don't want to see it. Yeah, I just wanted to show it very briefly for the viewers so they could see. So you have your ascendants at eight degrees of Sagittarius. Your sun is at twenty five Cancer, and your moon's at twenty three Taurus. Okay. Um. So, all right. So you're born in nineteen forty one, and you said that around nineteen sixty you moved to California, right? And what I said was that in 1960, I quit high school, never finished high school, don't have a diploma to this day. And I hitchhiked to California and lived in Santa Monica um, in what's called Venice West on Muscle Beach. I wasn't on the Muscle Beach, but I, I was living in an abandoned, um, the basement of an art gallery called the Gas House in a lot any book on beatniks and stuff knows about that place i was living in the basement in, a, in an abandoned walk-in wood freezer and i was sleeping on oak shelves and at that point i thought i was going to be an oil painter right i was going to paint oils my mother was what? an artist so i was raised with a certain amount of ability and so that's what i was doing I was living on living on almost nothing 
Um, being what trying to be a, a beatnik. Right? What drew you there? What motivated moving there in the first place? The beats. It was one of that, and then I also went and lived in, to North Beach. I was going to the places and to Greenwich Village. I would think I hitchhiked to New York like ten times. I was going to the place. I was following, you know, Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg and people like that, trying to hop on that train. But I really was a little, just a little too young, and uh, but I still, you know. Uh, I would do all the things you did. I would smoke cigarette butts from the street. Whatever they did, I did. It was just a totally copying, wanting to be part of something that was already just like the, what the Gertrude Stein line, line before friendship faded, friendship faded. Well, before, before I could become a beat, it kind of went out of existence. It died out. So I was trying to get the last gasp of that in in whatever authentic way that I could. So that's what I was doing in 1960. Okay. And somehow in California, you got exposed to other like divination and other alternative forms of, of astrology and I Ching and other things. Exactly. But I did that even more, more so in um, 1964, I spent a year living in Berkeley, California. Um, and there was it much more so. But in like, like for, for instance, in 1961, I traveled and hitchhiked with Bob Dylan. Right? He wasn't famous, but he and I hitchhiked from you know, New York City to Boston, uh, just down the road together. And so that was how life was then. Uh, he, he was just a very bright person, but he wasn't Bob Dylan. He was called Bob Dylan, but he, I didn't know that he was going to be famous, right? Mm. This is before he his popularity exploded. Yeah, his first album was made later that year in '61. I think that I at some point in, in the fall he played on an album with Bel Belafonte or something. Just uh, maybe he was playing harmonica or something. Mostly he wasn't doing writing any songs. He was singing folk songs, right? That idea. I have his chart correct. He was born. His chart's actually very similar to yours. Well, it's because um, of it's because of the Grand Trine and stuff. Yeah, he's yeah, born you, a couple months before me. I'm gonna uh, put it on the screen just for a minute, just to glance and can't let you people... put that in later? I mean, it, I, um, I find it very disruptive. I didn't know sure. we were gonna do that. We should have talked about this. Yeah, it's something I do. Um, when you do, it blows out my light completely because it gets huge, hugely ooh. bright here, and then it, it's just. It wrecks the whole mood. Okay, I'll, so, I'll just uh, I'll describe it for the audio people. But if I have this right, and I know there's some questions surrounding his birth um, data, but he has Sagittarius rising as well, like you, with the Moon in Taurus conjunct Saturn. Um, Uranus. Yeah, and just a few in Uranus. There's just a few other placements like that that are very kind of striking. So that's funny that you you know, had that connection with him early on just because you would have had similar charts and sometimes people with similar charts sort of um, have a way of growing together? Well, I also happened to put on a one of his first shows in Ann Arbor, Michigan uh, and stuff like that and, you know, sat around with him. I can remember just sitting around smoking cigarettes with him the next morning to see the review coming in on the Michigan Daily, which is the University of Michigan 
do newspaper to see what people thought of it. And then when, when he, he got a good review and then he just get, got his stuff and got on a highway and hitchhiked out of town. And so I spent some time with him, both in Ann Arbor, in New York, in Boston and stuff like that. But I had no idea that I was spending my time with Bob Dylan. Other than he was just a really bright guy, like many of us were. Hmm. Were you, so this is, a, you said that was around 1960, the early 60s. That was 61, in, in the spring of 61. Got June. it. So, and it wasn't until 64 that you really got into astrology when you moved to Berkeley? No, I was, astrology was one of many of the, the occult sciences or whatever we want to call them. When I went, when I went to Berkeley in 1964, I to study with a, a professor and I ended up just being having my mind blown by Berkeley. And, you know, I discovered, you know, Gurdjieff and Spensky and just a million things that I, I came from Ann Arbor, which was like a, a weak sister. At that point, it's not anymore. It's a powerful center. But then uh, Berkeley was an incredibly powerful center. And I lived there and worked, worked at, you know, in a record store as assistant manager of discount records on Telegraph in, in Berkeley. I worked at Lucas Books, which people don't even remember. Worked at Cafe Mediterraneo or Mediterranean, whatever the name was, as a busboy, just trying to stay alive and also figure out what the heck was going on there because it was a wild place. Wonderful place. Berkeley was? Yeah. Then. What would what was the astrology scene like or what was the scene like? This is like right in the middle of the 60s at this point. I wasn't part of any astrology uh, scene in Berkeley. I was just interested in it the same way I was interested in Gurdjieff, I Ching, and stuff like that. All, any of these psychic sciences or cult sciences, whatever we call that, New Age. Came later, I think it was called New Age, but that's kind of a gross term for me. Um, I precede that. And then we weren't calling it that. It was just... I mean, hippies weren't there yet. It wasn't hippies didn't start till 1965. So there's a little area between the late 50s and the middle 60s. It's not very well documented, but it's when Dylan happened and when I was doing stuff, a lot happened there that's not really recorded. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I'm noticing if you're born in 41, you're just like slightly older than some of your other contemporaries of like the people that became the leading astrologers were born during that period in like the early to mid 40s. But you're, you know, you're in California as a early in your early 20s, basically at this point, right when everything's starting to take off or right when astrology is about to take off and become massively popular um, in the United States towards the middle to late part of the decade? You know more about it than I do. I'm saying I wasn't concerned about astrology in 1960 or even in 1964 other than interested in it, that I wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think of myself as primarily primarily an astrologer then. Okay. I became that way. Do you know when you read your first chart or started reading your first charts professionally? Oh, professionally. Uh, when I hung a sign out was when I found out that I that we were pregnant with our first kid, uh, and I was totally freaked out. How how could I provide for a family because I 
had no idea, barely could provide for myself, right? And so uh, I think it was in 1972, uh, in the summer of 72, that uh, actually I put a sign out and I became officially an astrologer. And I began offering classes and uh, eventually we had a mail order business selling astrological materials and stuff like that. Okay, so you're pretty far into it at this point because that's a time jump from like 1965 to 72. Um, were there any other, other notable things that happened in that period in terms of your interest in or studies of astrology? Because I know, you know, like like Linda Goodman's Sun Signs came out in 1968 and that was like wildly right. successful. I know that's not a huge technical book, but at least is indicative of a lot of people got into astrology at the end yep. of the decade, it seems like. I think it might be helpful to know that from the middle 60s, from 1965, I started a band with my brother called the Prime Movers Blues Band. And uh, my drummer was Iggy Pop, a young Iggy Pop. And, uh, so I was doing that. In fact, we named him Iggy because he came from a band called the Iguanas. And we teased him for a while, called him Iguana because they were to us a frat band and we were whatever, a new kind of band. So but later he, he liked the name himself, called himself Iggy. And so I was doing music and playing, you know, opening for Cream, San Francisco and play with Jerry Garcia and all this kind of stuff, open for different kinds of, you know, backed up different kinds of bands like the Shangri-Las, the Contours. Uh, so during that time, I wasn't doing much astrology as I was doing that. Okay, got it. So yeah, you're in the middle of the music scene in the height of the 60s, basically, right? Um, moving in a lot of those circles. And then do things start to calm down then with music by the early 70s? And in terms exactly. of your study, in terms of your studies of astrology, you're at least familiar with it by for like a decade by this point right you've got more than 10 right, years but it was a familiarity like yeah i was familiar with it but i didn't think that i was particularly adept at it or anything like that just it just was one of the things that i was interested in that if you and i were drinking coffee late one night smoking a lot of cigarettes we'd talk about that mm -hmm. um you know and so i think that when the band kind of broke up but naturally, we went through, through I think, 38 musicians. Uh, I was the leader of the band and also the making it happen. Produced, all, did all the silk screening, all the advertising materials I did myself and stuff like that. So that when that kind of happened like that, and then when I got married in 1971, um, I had other responsibilities. And so I began to get more and more uh, into astrology, especially when the bookstore Circle Books opened in night, spring equinox of 1968, and I talked a bit about that, and I helped them rebuild it. I, be, I, be, I began to give classes at night there. Not only did the charts for them, I began to teach astrology in, in probably 1968. Okay, so that's a pretty big landmark. So your brother yeah. op opened that bookstore, that like metaphysical bookstore right. in this on the spring equinox of 1968, and you started teaching classes there? Exactly. Well, no, I started doing charts for them. First of all, okay. I helped them rebuild the place so that it didn't look like a 
nothing in store, but it looked beautiful, right? It had, you know, as I said, it had redwood and globe lights and fish tanks, salt water, and fresh, a big chart we made, chart wheel, you could show the daily stuff, you know. Oh, wow. I'm sure we all worked on it, but mostly a lot of that was just my influence. Do you have any picture, pictures of that still? Yeah, I can send that to you. Yeah, send them. I'll see if I can splice some of them in just so people can see what that sure. looks like. It sounds really cool. Um, so you're doing just you're doing the charts in terms of calculating charts. Does that mean you had some technical aptitude or ability in terms of math and the ability to do that stuff quickly? Well, we're talking about doing them, doing charts with log tables and ephemerides and stuff like that. You don't need a lot of math for that. Sure. But I did begin to um, begin to. I think that. Uh, but the four-function calculator, we know that, add, subtract, multiply, and divide, didn't come out until, I think, 1972 or 1973. Right, um, which is crazy so, that it was that late. It's something, for somebody like me, born in the 80s, thinking in retrospect, it's one of those things you assume has always been around, but that was actually only right. introduced like at that point. So, so um, I think we started, my brother Stephen and I made Circle Books calendar, astrological calendar starting in 19, what it was, I think it was 1960, no, it must have been 1969, and, and it went on for 40 some years, became part they, of it, AFA did it, took it over at one point, but we still produced it. And that you produced China, what? Sorry, can what? you say that again? What was Circle it that Books, you started? Astrological calendar. Calendar, okay. It. it was you know something you put on the wall that had and I did all the all the writing for it, and Stephen and I did the calculations, and eventually Stephen did most of the calculations because I was off to do other stuff. Um, but what I was trying to get at is that in that calendar in the back, I had a, a couple pages to introduce stuff, and one of the things I did is introduced a way of using the you know four function calculator with your ephemeris and your log tables save you a lot of time. That was the beginning. And later I did the same thing on programmable calculators. Right. Uh, that's huge. That, yeah, and then, then with programmable calculators, it could read little magnetic strips. So then I had a full, and, and even uh, Hewlett Packard, and I can, I can get you the date, I can't remember exactly, somewhere in there, Hewlett Packard published one of my programs uh, on a programmable calculator, the HP 97, Hewlett Packard 97, in a special book they wrote just on astrology. And so uh, I'm saying, so gradually I was upping my game as things that came along that I could use tools to, to do this stuff more and more simply. Then in 1977, when home computers finally became available, I produced the first my first astrology program that was absolutely accurate within a couple of minutes of arc for all the planets, plus heliocentric, geocentric, local space, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it kept off and running. You know, then I eventually had a company, but I didn't start out um, thinking I was going to be selling astrological software. So uh, that's really interesting that though the first steps were actually with calculators and that was the 
the genesis of moving in that direction, but also because you were doing char calculations for the bookstore, that's part of the motivation is to be able to do those more quickly and more accurately and reliably, because you must have had just like huge demand if they opened that bookstore in 68, there must have been just tons of people wanting to get their charts calculated. That's true, but it wasn't quite like you say it. It's like I wasn't in, I wasn't in a rush just because it would save me time producing stuff for the bookstore. I was in a rush because I was excited with new technology and mm, wanting to okay. implement it and share it with other people. Got it. Okay. So it was the excitement about being able to use this technology and yeah. that you, you had a good, because astrology is a great application case for a lot of those things. Um, like the application of computers or of calculators is like really obvious and something that that you would want to to jump to use it and apply that but, to. But it was a, it was a step, and I can give you a little story because I think stories are good. Um, we had no money, nothing, uh, and we just scraped along. I worked as a stage crew. I helped mix pottery with a good friend of mine that was a really fantastic potter. I did stuff like that. And my parents gave me a, one of their cars because they got a new one. And so I parked it and we lived on a main street across from a junkyard by a river in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I, the only place we had to park that car was right down by this busy highway as people left Ann Arbor going out main street, going north or coming in. And that, um, that car got crashed. Someone, someone rear-ended it and totaled it. Broke our hearts. It was like one thing we had. And so I had to try to go. I wanted to go and get my first real calculator. Um, and so I went to the bank. And I was really proud of being an astrologer. And so I needed to get a $500 loan, which is not a lot of money. But back then, it was, for me, a lot of money. And I'm sitting there with a the financial guy, whoever he is, and he says, well, uh, what do you do? You know, I said, well, I said, I'm an astrologer. And, and he picked, took, took out a long sheet of paper and says, you look down and says, yes, you're listed right above migrant workers as a risk. Oh, wow. We're not going to give you a loan. Wow. And they didn't. And so I had to go back three times over some months until finally they gave it to me. And of course, I paid it off. But then, then I was programming with a real programmable calculator. That, you know, literally, I had no money. I had no way to get money. Whatever money I made was just to live, to have food, and and stuff like that. But we didn't need money. We we were living a wonderful life uh, on on very little. So I'm just saying that's a story of how I got my first programmable calculator. That's incredible. So you you literally had to take out a loan to buy your first program, programmable calculator. Exactly. I wow. didn't have and, any money. And it cost, is that the full amount that cost roughly oh, no, that, like it, 500? I, or? I, think, I think it probably cost more than that. I don't remember. I'd have to go look it up. HP 97 or HP 67 before that. I'm not sure which, which is the one I bought through them, but uh, I needed some help. I didn't have anyone to give me any money. I would ask, first of all, I don't like to borrow money. And I've never, well, I think I've borrowed money on a house. You have to do that. But I've, I've always bought, lived within my means without borrowing money. 
If I didn't have any money, I didn't buy anything. That idea. Yeah, I'm just looking it up on Wikipedia. It says in 1967, it had an MSRP of $450. So yeah, like that's... Um, Which one was that? 67 or the 97? It says HP 67, but then it but, says slash 97, and I'm not sure. No, well, I can... 67 doesn't have a printer. 97 mm. was a larger machine with a real keyboard. It was about this size, and it had its own printer, and it took... Yeah, you, you didn't just have to program it, but it had really great magnetic strips that, that you could store stuff on. Got it. Okay, I, yeah. It looks like... It, probably that, the 67 did too. I just don't remember. Yeah, it looks like the maybe the 67 might have been introduced in 76, but then the 97 was introduced in 77. Right. So that's the time frame we're talking about, and that's the programmable comp uh, calculator. But this isn't... This is still, we're talking about calculators here. This isn't right. technically, this is prior to what became Matrix, the software, the personal software program, right? Well, Matrix wasn't, a, I mean, what came was home computers, right? They came in, you know, the Apple, what, 2E or 2C, or just the original Apple happened in that time period. And what I was interested in was a Commodore PET 2001, which is a computer that had uh, on-screen block graphics, um, and it had a, a memory of 8K. That was total. Right now, you you would use a key just to press a key on a keyboard. Right. Yeah, I could. <laughs> yeah, 8K is not i think my refrigerator has like ten thousand times the computing power of that at this point um right. so that's that's a jump though so what did you you had to take out a loan i just want to clarify this point to get the first programmable computer around 76 77 okay calculator or computer sorry calculator what did you use that for what what was the um to take out a loan, that's a major thing to do. Why did you? Right. Why were you pressing so hard to do that to get that specific piece of equipment? Because I had ideas. Uh, I had things in my mind. I wasn't just an astrologer that wanted to just read what was there. I wanted to I had questions in my mind. And for example, I'll give you. There's lots of them, but one example would be I developed a technique that's now. I don't know what they call it anymore, but it's called local space astrology. Basically, it's a, it's a way of using azimuth and altitude in a way it's often used for relocation. So it's a relocation that's different than astrocartography, which is used a completely different approach. And so to do that required a tr trigonometry. First of all, math was my least favorite. And also, you know, like I think I took algebra one. Three times, finally okay. they just they just goosed me through. I said, "Just go. We'll give, right. we'll give you a D, but we don't want to see you again." Yeah, they're just um, like, "Get out of here." So that's interesting I, that you didn't have a particular like affinity no, with mathematics. No, but I was really good at geometry. I got all A's in geometry because mm. it was it was a picture. I'm very graphic. So to answer to try to go. So one of the things I wanted to do was to calculate what became to be known as a local space chart. And to do that required uh, trigonometry. So originally, I did that with trig tables, tables that you looked up in a book. 
it would take me an entire day to cal calculate one single chart. Wow. It was that. So when these programmable calculators came along, my God, here's a chance to, to program that and not take an entire day, but maybe take 20 minutes or 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, all I had That's to do huge. was learn how to program the trig stuff. And I knew nothing about math, but, but I, in the process, I learned a lot of math just because I was that interested. I think that that's true of any one of us that has interests. That interest can take us a look very far in terms of what we're willing to do and sacrifice in order to take advantage of it. And so, right. And in so directions that, that you might not otherwise gravitate towards just inherently, but if you have like a interest or a passion for something, it can lead you to want to do yeah. or learn learn things that you might not learn otherwise. Well, yeah, another example would be in 1975, using a programmable calculator, I created a 400-year ephemeris from 1653 to 2050 in a little book that you needed a four-function calculator to use it but it gave you accurate heliocentric positions for 400 years. Nobody had that. That didn't exist. You, the only place you could find any helio stuff really that was accurate was the American Ephemeris and Nautical Almanac from the government. And you had, had to have it for every year. So I would be going to the physics library at University of Michigan and copying the helio, helio stuff year by year by year by year. Uh, stacks and stacks of Xeroxes and stuff. So, so in 1975, I published a book called, it was called The Sun is Shining. Sun is Shining. So that's one thing I did. And another thing I did was with a friend of mine on a mainframe computer was calculate what's what I call interface planetary nodes, a heliocentric, the relationship of all of the uh, orbital planes inclination or disinclination, whether you're inclined or disinclined, every planet to every other one. I published that in 1976. And also in 1976, I published what's called Astrophysical Directions. It was the first book, it was a whole book that I paid for myself and actually got printed and laid it all out with a typewriter. And also seven star maps. I, I created seven star maps with, with press type. That basically giving astronomy to astrologers in astrology language rather than astronomy language, you know, in longitude and latitude rather than right ascension and declination. So that was called Astrophysical Direction. Now I republished it called the Astrology of Space, but it was introducing astrologers to pulsars, quasars, black holes, all the different systems that, you know, the local you know, the galactic system, the supergalactic, the local group of galaxies, the local group of stars and stuff like that, that and all, all with accurate um, and all, you know, just all with a typewriter. Right. Computer. So, this is, and this was all before computers. So we, if you ask me, what did I need programmable calculators for? That, that stuff. So, and you're self-publishing with typewriters yeah. um which is amazing but also so it seems like part of your motivation during this period is you it seems like you developed an interest in incorporating new astronomical advancements and things that were happening in astronomy 
into right. contemporary astrology and that that's part of your motivation because you're talking about things like um heliocentric astrology local space astrology um quasars and pulsars which are like new right. astrological or astronomical um concepts right. and bringing those into astrology so that's part of your motivation during this time period oh yeah i mean that this was happening um and the only thing that prevented me from using it astrologically is the ability to use it effortlessly through calculation of one kind or another. And when I wanted to, and I did a lot of other stuff I'm not even bringing up, but uh, I was, but I wasn't doing it. I was doing it out of interest. I mean, I wanted to know. I needed the calculators. Uh, I didn't start out. And when computers came along for me in 1977, I didn't see myself starting a software company. I saw myself really computerized, being able to use a computer in a big way, in a much bigger way than a calculator. And then and to begin with, what I did was I get, I would, I made a program and I would make, and I was in touch with many astrologers by that point. Uh, I would give all my programs away for a long time, for months and months and months. I didn't charge anyone, anyone. In fact, I got a, Got a letter from a very famous astrologer, which I won't name, tempted to, just telling me that, and he was a someone that was interested in money, and and made his money by helping other people make money through astrology, and he, his letter said to me, he says, you don't have any right, early wine, to charge for your software anything more than the cost of the cassette and the mailer. It's because mm. he could see that he. There's no way he could get any piece of that because he didn't have the chops to do it. Same, but I actually received that letter. Kind of blew yeah. my mind, right? Like, what well, the there was some, because I've heard some of this in like early stories about Microsoft and stuff as well, but there was some sort of tension between there was a, a really idealistic um, component to some of their early software companies and programs and stuff about them being free or not commercializing things or other things like that, that was like actually like a contingent of, you know, what people thought this was supposed to be about or something like that. I've never heard any of that bit. My first program, my first astrology programs were bought by, first of all, they were advertised right next to the first spreadsheet. It was called Visicalc. There was Visicalc and there was my, and astronomers were buying it, mostly amateur ones. Because they had no, they had not figured out way, they had not figured out how to do astronomy on a home computer, but I had. So even though it was an astrology program, all these astronomer, mostly amateur ones, people like myself, were buying it so they, they could do calculation. That was before they, they had them within a few years, then they had their own programs. But for, for a while, they didn't have any. Wow. So that's interesting. So maybe the astrologers developed programs first before some of the astronomers did? Exactly, for home computers. So um, I want to ask you about a couple of things, I guess maybe because I want to switch to talking about the personal computer at this point, but I also want to, you mentioned heliocentric and local space astrology, and I know those are specific things that you really came to specialize in and did some yeah. of your own technical innovations in. Absolutely. Should we? Should we circle back around to those or should we address those now? Well, we can address those now. 
they're big deals. Um, so, so with local space astrology, let's start with heliocentric because that came first. Okay, so and with and, and, and the, it, it's important to go in that order because uh, local space was something that I first published an article, astrology of local space in uh, astrologer uh, Charles uh, A. Jane. He had a thing called Cosmicology Bulletin. And I forget that was somewhere I have the date of that too. But but that but the the real thing that happened to me that changed my life in astrology was heliocentric. And let me let me tell that story a little bit. Because right. and you can ask whatever questions you have, but it's very it's very important in understanding who I am, what I was after. And it was simply became out of it came out of when I finally had a computer, home computer, Commodore Pet, and later different Commodores and many Commodores. There were no disk drives. There was only cassettes. There were no printers. Uh, I had my first printer was a sixty-five pound teletype machine. I had to program the word processor for it that would justify type didn't exist. I had to do it myself. Uh, mm. And I made a book on it that the AFA sold called Manual for Computer Programming for Astrologers. With the money I made from that, I never made any money, but I was able to get a, a, uh, a spin writer printer, real printer. Uh, and that was enough for me. And, and they had the rights to that book for, forever afterward. Um, anyway, one of the first things I did when I begin to program and say, okay, here's my natal chart. Here's the one that I've worked with all these years. This is me as I know it in astrology. And there are other things. What is this heliocentric? What's that? And I didn't really know. I mean, I knew what it was. It was a, you know, a chart from the center of the sun rather than a chart from the center of the earth. But I didn't know what to do with it. So I figured out how to... To program it, and I, and I created my chart, and I looked at it and studied it, uh, and then I took all of the techniques that I use. You know, we all have a bag of tricks that we have for interpreting things that, you know, we well, you're, I can give you an instance. In my geo chart, my Mars is in Aries. Now that's hot stuff, right? That's you know, just interpretively. Sure, fire sign. Exactly. Yeah. But the truth is that in the helio chart, Mars was not that's all the Earth saw Mars and Aries, but in relation to the center of the sun, my actual Mars was in Aquarius. Mm. So I would say to myself stuff like this. This is the stuff that I carried with me like baggage. Is that okay, I'm kind of hot headed. My Mars and Aries. But Maybe my hot-headedness has an Aquarian background. Maybe it does. My energy has an serves an Aquarian purpose. Maybe, maybe my energy and aggression to do something actually ends up having something that benefits people. And certainly, we could say that programming for astrologers is a, an example of that. So that's what I would call the kind of interpretation that I came into heliocentric with. Did heliocentric, just, were there other astrologers doing heliocentric before that, or were you one of the first that that started looking at casting charts with the sun at the 
with just that approach? I, I can't say there, you know, there's a, there was a, a guy named Butler that had a, a rough ephemeris. There were different people who used it, but they really, all they did, I don't know how to say that without patting myself in the back, but, but I don't care. I can pat myself in the back. The point is, is that they only, they never got empowered. And this is something you, you can maybe make as a separate thing or something. But the point is, is that um, about 500 years ago, Copernicus pointed out to astrologers who were astronomers, were astrologers, both, said, hey, guys, everything does not revolve around us, the Earth. Actually, the Earth revolves around the sun. And everyone, everyone went, oh, my God. But astrologers never took to that. The astrologers, astrologers who became astronomers walked away from that time with two charts. One, the traditional geocentric chart that we all know, traditional one, but also this heliocentric chart. And, they, and if you look at, at the history of academics, the two oldest disciplines in academia are botany and astronomy. And astronomers make a decent living. Astrologers, I don't believe, do and still don't. And I think that the reason that they don't is because they were not empowered when Copernicus pointed out the obvious and they said, oh, well, that's not useful. We don't live on the sun. Oh, we certainly live off the sun and of the sun. And I could, I'll spare you the lecture. But no, I mean, what is your answer to that? Because I think that's a question and most geocentric astrologers immediately raise is, is why cast the chart for the sun if we live on earth or What's your thought process with that? Well, for one, they love to, to label me a heliocentric astrologer because I use it. And I'm not just a heliocentric astrologer. I use heliocentric astrology and I use geocentric astrology. I never stopped looking at my geo chart, but I already knew it by heart. And I've okay. done everything in my ability to squeeze the juice out of that that I could. So they're not just, mutually exclusive. You just no, look at them as different. No, of course not. And local space is another. One of the things that I've taught to the best of my ability is that there are different views. Each view has its own. It's just like algebras. There's different kinds of algebras. Each one expresses a particular view. So it's the same with charts. But because I said, hey, look at this helio view, everyone said, oh, you're a heliocentric astrologer. Uh, just like uh, um, being a minority, right? It's pretty painful Ooh. because. What? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard there, it, it reminds me of other debates in the community like tropical versus sidereal, which I think Rob Hand told me that even that debate was like a major, there was a very um, intense debate about that, I think, in that time frame in the 60s and 70s. Well, they did, but that was ridiculous because. What you really want to know is where stuff is in the surrounding universe. And it, it's a slightly different place if you use a, one of the sidereal uh, than it is if you just use tropical zodiac. So I got around that by just simply saying, I don't care which one you want to use. I want to know where's the center of the galaxy? Where's the center of this? Where's the local system? Where's all this stuff? Because it's largely empty. 
But where the stuff is that we gather about, that we orbit, that's something that's important to know. And so anyway, we, we don't have to do get off into that. First of all, I think that to me, I have I, another one would be houses, trying to decide what's the right house system. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Right, um, we don't, and we, we don't could talk about that. it if you wanted to, but um, no, let's not get into that. Um, so with heliocentric, though, we can j just leave it that you became a major, major part of focus and major proponent of looking at the heliocentric chart as another point of view, and then right. you also started doing work on local space astrology. Exactly. And I needed some clarification on that. Is that terminology of local space, and is that an innovation on your part, or is that something that existed already to some extent? when you came into the field? No, I call it local space. Not only did I call it local space, but like Jim Lewis did with astrocartography, I had a story that went with it. You know, I, 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 could, I could show you why it was interesting. And I did, and I wrote pretty eloquently about it. Um, but no, no one ever called it local space. And I don't know what they call it these times. For a while, they said that I developed it. And after a while, they drop my name and they don't say anything about where it came from. But well, and that's what I'm look, trying to understand is where there did you do something? Were there specific technical innovations you made in looking at local space? Because I know, for example, with Jim Lewis, he's he copyrighted or is credited with um, the astrocartography line chart that shows you know yeah, lines yeah, across yeah. the globe and things like that. Um, but you also developed some specific techniques for local space or or of course, but I, I didn't try I didn't I didn't try to get trademarks on it. I didn't I've never cared about that stuff, right? Sure. They can do whatever they want with it. Jim Jim was hysteric about owning everything to do with astrocartography. I knew him as a friend and he'd call me up sometimes. And first of all, he called me up and Said I had no right to do local space just because it was relocation. Said, what? It's nothing to do with your technique, Jim. It's it's a completely different technique. So what I did was take azimuth and altitude. That's as old as astronomy. It means local space. If your dad picked you up just after you were born and walked outside, and in the in the horizon was this Venus. In the night sky, and there's the moon rising. That's local space. Local space is in that direction. When you were born was Venus. In that direction was the moon. Not only that, that direction goes through planets and stars, and so, but it also goes through cities on the surface of the earth. That was what I, and I, I told that story and showed them how to do it. And then a number of people wrote books about it. I wrote, I have one book just about it, just um, who got the idea from me and said so. And after a while, I don't think they say so where it came from, whatever. I mean, we're all old and, but yeah, and, people and don't your, get, don't, they don't credit people for what they've done. So Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons I was trying to establish it here. Just well, one of the things I, well, actually two things. One, so the title of that book if I'm correct, is location, local space, relocation, astrology. Yeah, something like that. I mean, I mean, local space is the point. The idea of local space, space around, surrounding your locality. And if you walked outside, just like I said, there's the moon. Do it tonight. Are those directions meaningful? Right. I don't know. I find them meaningful. That I, 
I went out, Jupiter was in the direction of uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I ended up living and where I did all that, all that work was done in Ann Arbor. All this computerization, local space, helix, all done in, and Jupiter, in Sanskrit, the word for Jupiter is guru. Basically, it's, it's, it's the path you must follow. It's your guide. And so, um, yeah, it worked for me. Uh, so, all, one of the things uh, that's... Go ahead. One of the things I just I happened to glance at and notice is I was doing some work actually on Jim Lewis's chronology for another episode yesterday and today when I was getting ready and I pulled up your chart for this interview um, in my database, I just happened to notice that um, you were born July 18th, 1981, and he was born- No, no, no 41, 1941. Sorry. Yeah, right. 41. And he was born just a month earlier, June 5th, 1941. So I, th I find it really striking, actually, that both of you ended up making notable contributions to locational or relocational astrology or whatever one wants to call it um, in the astrological community. And you're both born within like a month of each other is just kind of an interesting piece of trivia or astrological you know, information. And what do you think that's based on? Um, I don't know, probably just something in your charts that maybe gives you more of an awareness either or an interest in local astrology and the astronomy underlying astrology, or perhaps it was something similar where both of you were interested in innovations and incorporating new knowledge into the astrological tradition that perhaps you felt like in other instances had been overlooked or not adequately incorporated by astrologers? Well, in that chart, in Jim's chart, my chart and Dylan's chart, the most profound aspect that's happening is the trine between Uranus and Neptune. Mm. So Uranus breakthrough with Neptunian, whatever. That that's what I say we shared more than anything else. Right. That, so that, that that single aspect. So in in your chart, for example. Neptune's at 27 degrees of Virgo and it's trining Uranus at 26 Taurus. Right. Yeah, that is that is a really close aspect. Right. Um, and Venus is conjuncting heliocentrically uh Neptune. And the Earth is Earth and six planets are making a grand trine with the Earth at 25 degrees Capricorn 48 minutes. Well, so I have so six planets making a single grand trine. That's hard to find. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's funny. I was just reading because I'd cast your heliocentric chart and the positions I just read were heliocentric, but I just right. switched back to tropical and Neptune's at 25 Virgo and Uranus right. is at 29 Taurus. Right. Um, I, I haven't worked a lot with heliocentrics. I didn't realize the outer planets, they don't change positions much. It's the inner planets that move around a lot. Well, obviously the inner, inner planets, Mercury and Venus can be anywhere. Right, heliocentric. Beyond that, from Mars on out, it's a declining difference. Interesting. Well, the Pluto, okay. Pluto's don't differ much between Helio and Geo, but Jupiter does. Mars really does. Um, all this stuff needs to be, for me, astrology is cultural astronomy. I think the astrologer Moby Dick was the first person that said it. And I think his son, J.H. Jacob, kept that going but that's what astrology if if you're not following the astronomy of it you're not an astrologer right astrology is not a psychic 
that's something else. We can be astrologer and be a psychic. I'm nothing against any of that. I spent a lot of time with psychics, especially early on when they were all, any conference I went to, there was a ton of psychics. Um, I would go to their camps and visit them, stuff like that. But I'm saying that just like, I don't know what to think of predictive astrologers. You can, you can predict astronomy to the millisecond, right? There's no question. But our job is, is what does it mean? What's the meaning of astronomy? That's what we're supposed to be doing. If we're not doing that, we're doing something else. It's not astrology. That's my view. Right. Um, so there was something I wanted to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. Well, that brings up a really interesting question because one of the ironies, though, of the um, convergence in time in your chronology of the period we're talking about and the rise of personal computers is that up until the rise of personal computers, astrologers needed to know how to calculate charts by hand in order to be able to practice astrology. And it sounds like part of your motivation in bringing um, astrology to computers was allowing people to, to do all these calculations and use all these other techniques and in some ways to make them more familiar with the astronomy by producing some of those tables and um, some of the star charts you mentioned. But one of the weird side effects now that people talk about in recent decades is that a person doesn't know how to calculate a chart by hand and they don't necessarily need to know the astronomy in order to just have a, a chart calculated and interpreted it. So there may be an irony there that astrologers are now in some ways less familiar with the astronomy than they were before the rise of personal computers. Well, we probably have to say that we don't, can't expect much ingenuity from them if they don't know the astronomy enough to be able to see what it is they want to interpret. I mean, I think it's great if you can just make a chart and I help that happen. Um, and yeah, you can try to interpret it, but I'm just repeating myself that you're not, if you don't know the astronomy, first of all, they don't know how to make a chart anymore. Um, and most astrologers don't know any astronomy either. Um, so what are they doing? And we know what they're doing. And I've, I think we had 40, 50,000 customers at Matrix when I was there. Uh, so I've met and served a lot of astrologers. And if you ask me, well, what, what are they doing? Um, Good luck. I don't know what they're doing. You know, uh, were they any more familiar with the astronomy though before computers, no. really, than they are now, or is that just an no. idealized thing? Yeah, that's just an idealized thing. I don't think they were, uh, not to my knowledge. The point is, is that if if they don't agree that astrology is cultural astronomy, you know, we're there to t tell the world what that's what astronomy means. What's the meaning that, of Saturn conjunct Mars? That's what you we, mean by cultural astronomy? Yeah, that's what we mean. Oh, well, it, what does it mean? What does astronomy mean? What's the meaning of astronomy? Hmm. That's all we have to go with. We're not going, we're not using that accurately. Then we're just, first of all, I, you know, you know that I know that a lot of people are just using astrology like a touchstone, just to just to wing to wing it with some kind of psychic stuff they have. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's one way of using astrology, not the way that I know. 
or, or, or was ever remotely interested in. First of all, I went to many psychics and they're like, no offense, chiropractors in the sense that you end up being re dependent on them tell you what you should worry about. And I don't, any kind of stuff like that, I don't like. I want to, I want to empower people to, to do it themselves. And that's why I wish that astrologists could learn to take the, the empowerment that Copernicus put out there for the heliocentric, which has an empowerment, because it would change their life forever, change mine forever. When I when I begin to understand my heliocentric chart, within a matter of months, I, transfer, I transferred my identification as to who I was from my geocentric chart, which became the child chart, to the mother chart, which is helio, which is the, that which is the earth is dependent on is the sun. And when that happened, I began to, to it, it's, it's a kind of transmigration that I became to recognize myself as someone different than I had imagined. And I became that. So it doesn't go the other way. I never went, I've never gone back to thinking myself as solely, first of all, I think of both charts. But if, if you say the way I teach it and wrote a whole book about it is that the heliocentric chart is the chart of your dharma. What you're going to do, why you're what you're here for. While the traditional geo chart is the chart of the circumstances and the karma in which you're in, embedded in. And those two work together like hand in glove. But the important thing is to know is to know who you are and why you're here. And to me, the heliocentric chart does that. That's why I call it it's a chart of your dharma. And, right. Um, and that brings up that you developed at some point a lifelong interest in Tibetan Buddhism, right? Right. And that's incorporated as part of your philosophy of astrology to some extent? Uh, I don't know. Not particularly. I mean, on, only only in the sense that uh, through Tibetan Buddhism, which I've done for, my teacher just died a couple of years ago. 2019, and I was with him for 36 years. What was his name? His name is Kempo Katar Rinpoche, and he was Tibetan, spoke no English ever. And so I've been to Tibet with him. Um, so as you say, well, how did it affect my astrology? When did that develop? When did you develop that interest in Buddhism? Oh, back in the late 50s. It was an interest in Zen Buddhism. We used to stay up late, watch Ingmar Bergman movies, talk about Zen Buddhism, smoke cigarettes, drink instant coffee with powdered creamer. Um, and that's how I, my interest in Buddhism, it, it took me until 1974 to realize that Buddhism was something to do yourself, not something to talk about. Because I'd had a lot of fun talking about it, but I didn't realize I met Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who's a very famous Tibetan Rinpoche in this country. I got to be a chauffeur for a time. And he taught me that uh, Buddhism isn't something to talk about, it's something to do. It's your action, actions you must take. 
Never occurred to me. Wow, I don't know I could do it. Uh, and it's, it's much harder than astrology, astrology, I can tell you that, much more difficult. But my point is that one of the first things I learned from it is astrologers don't train their minds. We think, astrologers think, and people, not just astrologers, people think that the mind, just as it comes out of the box, so to speak, is good to go. Tibetans don't say that. They know it's not, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's not good to go. It's whatever it is. You're going to have to take whatever it is and tra train it. That never occurred to me. I thought that everything was just as it, you know, my mind was just all 100% good. And I, I found out through Dharma training, and I've done a lot of it. And, you know, and according to Hoyle, I mean, I did it exactly the way they asked me to instead of my own way. I mean, I'm still always doing my own way, but I did all the hundreds of thousands of frustrations, hundreds of thousands of uh, mandala offerings, and et cetera. It's a very, very difficult, there's a whole hierarchy. Talk about you know, trying to learn something. Buddhism is very difficult to learn because right. you actually have to do stuff every step of the way and you can't get, get around it. There's no way to, there's no back door to it. You have to go through it. If you don't go through it, okay, you don't. But if you're going right. to go through it, you're going to go all the way through it. But I that's part, that. of, part of where you incorporate terms like dharma when you're talking about heliocentric astrology and how you conceptualize the difference between that and the geocentric yeah. chart. Well, you can say that. And, that, you know, absolutely, I feel that the dharma, what it is that we have no choice about but to go that path. That is something that the Tibetan, uh, in Tibetan astrology, I've also studied, I wrote an 800-page book on Tibetan astrology. Uh, but I'm not a Tibetan astrologer. It's a book about it. I don't know it by doing it for 50 years. Where did you get the knowledge of that? The Rinpoche's from everything I could. I, I brought over people, brought over two different, I brought over this one, one person came and lived for years with us. His name was Sangay Wangchuk. He was from uh, Bhutan. And later we taught him how to use, he was a great artist. And I just, some of his drawings, about 500 of them are now in the Rubin Museum of Art in New York City, which is a very famous as a part of their permanent collection. But he, um, I'm trying to think of what I was trying to say. That, uh, he was a good artist, you said, and we were talking about where you got the knowledge of Tibetan astrology. Yeah, I got it from him. He lived in, and I also brought a young uh, astrologer from Rumtek. There are two basic kinds of astrology that we know most about. We know the Dalai Lama. Uh, it was called Galupa tradition. He's the 14th Dalai Lama. My teacher was is the Karmapa. Karmapa is the 17th. Karmapa is the oldest tradition with the reincarnate Lama. And I've been to Tibet to meet the young Karmapa when he was 12 years old. I took my whole family, most of my family with me. And I've met him other times on video crews and stuff work with him. So I've tried to learn all this stuff. And I guess that my point is that um, they have taught 
me, and I would love to pass this on to scholars, but I wouldn't even really try. You have to train the mind. If the mind is not, just cannot learn to meditate, people don't even have the vaguest idea what meditation is. They think they do. Meditation is very difficult to learn. Uh, and you have to learn, most of all, not to do this, that, and the other thing, but learn how to rest your mind in the nature of the mind. Well, there's two different kinds of meditation. One is what we would call dualistic, you know, subject and object. I'm going to do this. I'm here and you're there. And then there's non-dualistic where you're totally submerged. And examples of that would be Mahamudra, which is a non-dualistic kind of, not even, they don't even call it meditation, they call it non-meditation. There's also Dzogchen, which is another very similar Anyway, I've learned all that. I'm not an expert at it. I'm an expert at a lot of astrology. Sure. I never say I'm an expert in Dharma. I'm just doing my best. But it's certainly yeah. more interesting. Well, here's the way my teacher pointed out to me. Is he came and taught astrology, Benton astrology at our center because I asked him to. And he knows how interested I was in it. But he said to me, is this, and maybe some of you out there would benefit from it. He said, Michael... Astrology is one of the limbs of the yoga, but it's not the root. Astrology can help you get from here to there in samsara, in this world we're living in. But it, even at its best, astrology is like the old uh, saying of trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's never going to... You could, Astrology can make you, here's the way, I, the way I used to teach it was imagine the earth is a, a, a ball, is covered with water, the winds are blowing, and on that ball of water is a little sailboat. I used to race sailboats, so I know a lot about sailing. Uh, and this is what astrology is like. You can take that sailboat and you can set the sails to a different tack. And you can sell from, astrologer can help you get from here in samsara to somewhere else on the globe where you're better off. But it's not going to ever get you to the center. You're still going to be in samsara. You're still going to be on the Titanic. You're still going to die and have to go through all this stuff. That's the way you taught it. It's, astrology is not the root. And they love astrology, so there's not... Not be, they weren't deprecating it. They're simply saying, "Hey, this is this is what it's good for," mm -hmm. but but it's not good for everything. Right. So I want to yeah. learn more about everything. So that makes sense. Yeah. So let's circle back because we start. We I wanted to get that heliocentric and the other pieces that that you've specialized in um, in local yeah. space and, and Tibetanism. So, but let's circle back to the story of software which is um you said your first personal computer was the commodore pet and and that came out in 1977 so this is not too far after you got your first programmable computer or calculator by taking out that loan then you wanted to go the next step by getting a full-fledged personal computer absolutely i mean the, you know something bigger and better and that i could do more with okay how were if you had to take out a loan though for the 
calculator? How were you able to get this personal computer or, or how much, what was the time gap between those two? Well, I think I was also trying to, I think I established a home business, a mail order business of astrological materials. I could buy them wholesale from Llewellyn or AFA, and I could sell them to you either in Ann Arbor, or I can mail them to your house, wherever, and I could do whatever I could do to, to help you make it easier for you to learn. It never made that much money from it. It was very hard to have enough money to have an inventory. I just put something on the shelf, costs money, and it sits there until you sell it. So uh, I was probably making enough. I think the Commodore PET 2001 cost me $795. That's all. Okay. But that was to me a huge amount of money. Yeah. Uh, then. Yeah, because that's like a lot more in 2023 dollars, I'm sure. Oh, okay. Um, so but that's around the time that you found you created Matrix and you started creating software right. for other people was around 77, 78. Right. And I remember I also had Matrix magazine. People, all kinds of people, you know, uh Robert Hand and John Townley and just right on down the line, Bob Schmidt. They all subscribed to that. We all shared. I'm a, I'm a, I believe in sharing stuff. And that was sharing. Uh, you know, I, I think I put in that magazine the complete code, basic code, code written in basic of how to do charts. Um, Is that what you were programming in was basic? Well, I programmed some in fourth, if you know what fourth is, it's basically reverse Polish notation, but mostly in visual basic eventually. Um, yeah, I mean, visual basic could do just about anything. I mean, that's what most of matrix software's programs are written in. Okay, so you started with the Commodore PET and do you know what the first program was that you produced? Like what, what did it accomplish or what did the first software do? I absolutely do. do. It, it, it produced geocentric, heliocentric, local space charts. So like birth charts? Well, whatever kind of chart you wanted. Okay. And it also had, you know, an aspectarian in it. And it, it just did, and this was in 8K of RAM. Wow. Yeah. Is this is in like this is in like 77 78 or is this a little 77. later 77 okay so what about um the atlas like time zone lookups because i know that's a challenging thing and a sometimes controversial thing even today what data did you draw on for that i think we started out with just using the old books books we have to enter it in but then eventually i made a, an agreement with neil mickelson to use the uh use his atlas and pay him a royalty okay so the that and that's the, i'm drawing a blank on the but that's the main the atlas is acs acs atlas okay thank you um okay so you had to but you had to like manually type in enter the data for the acs atlas no first of all if you're using acs books yes but once you get once you had the digital copy no you didn't any more than you do now yeah. Um, and that ACS is Astro Computing Services, right? Yes. Okay. 
Um, what about the ephemeris? Did you where did you get the data for that early in the early days? Uh, I created it by by the actual algorithm producing them on on the spot, right? I didn't okay. have didn't use anyone's ephemeris because I was able to calculate an ephemeris of my own if I wanted to. Got it. Okay. Um, so, but that's really you're as the first person doing that, you're probably you're having to like come up and figure out all these problems, I'm sure, in terms of how to do these things on the spot. And I'm sure there was a lot of innovation in terms of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a struggle, right? It was, yeah, it was exciting, absolutely wonderful, but also uh, constantly coming up against stuff that are almost impossible. Were and there then, other people that you were able to talk to about it? Sure, I remember. Metrics Magazine, I should, I'm going to send you a bunch of stuff not too long from now, and I'll give you all of the different magazines. Okay. There's everyone you could think of that ever did anything. I mean, Tom Shanks, all these people contributed to that magazine. Do you know and when you started it? To, what? And I started it, Matrix Magazine. When? Oh, it must have been in 77. Oh, so at the same time. So right when you're founding the company, you also yeah, start the I magazine. Yeah, I was already doing this. I was trying, trying to gin up, get people involved, their stuff, right? Okay. So yeah, so that then having that magazine gives you connections to a lot of the other astrologers who would subscribe. Did you find a lot of people having immediate interest in what you were doing and wanting to use your software? A lot of people wanted to use my software. The people in the magazine contributed to the magazine. Right. There was hardly any just readers. These were people that were contributing to it. We were sharing what we knew. Okay. And there's, you know, you know, maybe there were 50, 60 pages each one. I don't know. I can't remember. But um, there's lots and lots of stuff. It's it's a trip, but you can have one. I send you all this stuff to go through. You know, and then there were, after after that there was Matrix Journal, which and see the history of people sending stuff and see what it was and who it was, what date they sent it and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not right. sure who's going to be interested in that, but someday if there's enough interest, maybe there will be interest in it. Hmm. Someone will be doing some research, or write a paper on it, or dissertation stuff like that because it was not nothing. It's a lot of work and a lot of sharing. It was a, a wonderful time to be living astrology. It was very, astrology was changing in a way it had never changed for, for many centuries. Yeah, that's an amazing shift, like historical shift to be on the cusp of, and I'm sure it was very exciting at the time. Totally. Just like you guys are into looking into the past and different languages and stuff. That's a very exciting thing that you were part of, right? Still are, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was profoundly, you know, we've talked about Bob Schmidt and stuff, Robert and um, yourself, and you have a whole group of people that are doing the different languages, you know, Latin, Greek, whatever. And that's something that didn't exist before, hardly. Yeah. Not that kind of enthusiasm. So this was that a few decades earlier was the, the, technological and like the computer yeah. personal computer revolution so you said the commodore pet was your first personal computer but then you said there was an apple not long after that yeah yeah once i became a business 
not everyone had Commodore pads. Okay. Some of them had apples. So I would program it on Apple. What was the um, Apple again? Apple, I think it was Apple. First of all, it was Apple. Then it was Apple, I think it's 2E and 2C. Uh, it had an integrated uh, high-res screen. But then also uh, Radio Shack. And my, and this is a good point to mention my brother, Stephen, who had been an astrologer and was actually a more serious astrologer than I was to begin with. He came and joined my company and he took over the TRS-80 and did all the programming for that. He's still working for Matrix today. Your brother? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So you did you co-found Matrix with him or what's the... No, I, the... I did Matrix all myself and invited him in, but we both shared astrology and he was more serious about it than I was before. I was, you know, I was interested in astronomy, I mean, astrology and teaching, as I said, and tarot. But he was more interested just in astrology. So I became more interested in astrology too at some point. So. Got it. Um, and it looks like the original Apple II was released in 1977. Um, yeah. the, the Apple IIe was released in 1983. Oh, no, then I'm not. I, I must have had 77 or 78 would be when I had it. Okay. I don't remember the numbers. So then you start programming for Apple and the Apple II was the, was I think that was like the wildly successful Apple, right? I mean, nothing was too wildly successful in the beginning. It could it could not do as much as the Commodore Pat, as far as I was concerned. Uh, sure. Radio Shack was kind of a junky computer. Um, difficult to work with just because it would fail at this and that. And, went, and I had an Osborne and all kinds of computers. And then IBM came along and we had IBM computers which are never all that interesting. It looks like the Apple II, some of them, it had a disk drive. So we're talking about the big square floppy disks at this point, right? I don't know what you're talking about. In the beginning, the Apple II was just with cassette tape. Okay. Period. All of them were. Nobody and had it, disk drives. And is that how you sold the first software program was on cassette tapes? Exactly. Do you know... Like how big, what was the storage capacity or what was the size of that program? Well, we're talking about 8K, however long it takes to write that out and then to rewind and verify it bite by bite. That's okay. what I did all day long. Send those out to people originally, as I think I mentioned earlier, free. Just because they were interested. I was thrilled that anyone could even care about it. How many do you think you sent out for free? No idea, but it was months. Like hundreds? And it cut into my ability to take care of my family. Okay. Had, so at some point you realize you can't keep doing this for free, so you start charging for the software? Exactly. Okay. So, and then you incorporate and by 78, and um, you start selling the software. There's somebody, you said you got a little bit of pushback for that, but otherwise, did it start being successful pretty quickly? Yeah, I would say astrologers were what they are today. Um, not quick to be to risk themselves. I mean, another example would be when we begin to produce written reports, astrological reports, right? Nobody wanted to admit that they were buying reports from us. But famous astrologers would be calling us on the QT saying, I want to have 
I want to be able to sell five dollars worth of scholarship to these people who aren't going to come and have a reading. I want one. I want that report writer send me some, but I don't want to talk about it. So you had some reports which are like pre-written delineations of different yeah. plan planetary placements, like in a birth chart, and you yeah. would sell those those computerized reports. This is down the road a little bit. Yeah, we we were doing them. Astrolabe did the same thing. How far down the road though? I, I don't know. Okay, I'm just trying no. to establish like the early. No, somewhere down the road. I mean, first you had to have uh, disk drives, and you had to have you know, floppies, and but farther down the road. But I remember Carol Jane and I used to put on. I think I might have told you the story before, but it's a good place for it. The ACT conferences, right? 1980, Charles Jane and I put on the first ACT in New Orleans at the AFA. So instead of just lecturing, I'm not a big fan of lectures. I don't like to lecture and I don't want to sit in a lecture. So we, what we had was roundtable discussions starting in the morning, every hour and a half or whatever it was, all the way through the day. Each, each one, we'd have 10 or 12 experts, like on local space or whatever it was. They would all meet. I don't know if you ever were to any of those or not. Um, but they were at many different, at UAC a couple of times. and we would talk about that. And anyway, one of them was on written reports. Talk about written reports. I mean, if I have 10, or 10 people or five people or whatever it was, and they have a monitor for the room. Somebody's monitoring the room who can come in and out. We were talking about computer reports and this young lady standing by the door, just bawling her eyes out because to her written reports were the end of astrology for her, that she couldn't do that. She couldn't compete with that. So anyway, I'm just saying that people did not welcome. First of all, they didn't. When I first published, uh, I published like Astrological Calendar, and I think 19, is it? I don't remember which one, but when I, there had to be 77, 78, or something like that. I put on the cover of the Commodore Pet with, with an aspectarian drawn on the screen on a, on the cover of a astrological calendar the whole year. Mm -hmm. People freaked out. They did not, a whole lot of people did not like the idea of, you know, calculating, calculating or using a computer. Some of them said that they loved doing it by hand with, you know, log tables and, and you know, there was a kind of a meditation for them. And to right. do it in in a, in a second or two was it anathema for them. It's just the worst thing in the world. These people, it, you know, that didn't last long. So there were some fears, though, initially about the rise of computers and about um, astrologers saying that this would disconnect people from knowing how to do it by hand. Exactly. There, there couldn't be any anything meditative. It's happening right now. With the advance of AI, right? Yeah, that's what that's People what I was just thinking of. We're freaked out. They're, well, I'm. I just finished over ten thousand images on Midjourney, which is an AI graphics engine. So I've learned. I, I believe in not running from this stuff, but mastering it. I use it. Learn to use it, and I've learned to use Midjourney, and I use it for almost all of my graphics illustrations not i don't think of it as art i think of it as a way to, way of illustrating 
blogs that I write every day on Facebook. Right. Well, in terms of the parallel, there's so also sort of an inevitability, like in your case with personal computers, that was happening one way or another, and that was that was going to happen one way or another. So it was just a matter of embracing it or sort of yeah. putting your your head in the sand. But the the world was going to become sort of like computerized no matter what, and it wasn't necessarily something astrologers could like fight or something like that. You can't. You're not going to be able to fight AI. Yeah, right. That's what, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I guess it's I'm just trying done. to I'm trying to figure out what the core, if if that was like the core lesson of that sort of epoch changing time period, that epoch that you were in, if that was part of the lesson from that, that's still applicable today of trying to embrace and see how you can use technology to accentuate or, or accelerate yeah. or en enhance what we already do rather than trying to fight it in a sort of exactly. like losing battle? Well, it's deja vu all over again. AI is doing, you see the same thing happening today that was happening in a smaller scale with astrologers and computerization. Well, although interestingly with the report writing thing, I could see how early on people might think that that was going to be a bigger deal than it became, but I don't feel like report writing that didn't end up actually replacing astrological consultations or other things like that as much no, as I, no, I think didn't. people thought it could. Right, and it didn't, and it hasn't. And I think sure. that's always the case. If people learn to use it, people get used to it, become dependent on it. Um, yeah, but the AI is going to be a big deal. Sure. So in terms of um, software, by the early 1980s, would we say is that when Matrix became super um, successful as a software company, or at what point do you think Matrix was? Here's what I've said. I don't know. I don't remember. I just know that it was. I can tell you another little story. 1980 wasn't then, because I went to, as I said, New Orleans, the FA convention, hmm. with my little software company. And I remember walking into the ballroom where all the uh, different sellers of stuff were there. And I had a little card table and I had two chairs, that's it, and a little tiny sign. And I knew that there was a thing called a Digicomp, which was a, a hardwired computer that did astrology. So I, I began to look around the room at all the other tables and other little displays where are these digicomps? Where are these people? And I couldn't find it. Then I looked across the back of the room, and the, the whole back of the room from left to right was one huge display that Digicom, whatever computer, whatever name they had, it totally blew my mind, right? Here I was sitting with my card table um, with my little cassette programs or whatever it was, uh, by that time, I'm not sure exactly what was what. Here was this company that was monstrously huge, covering, you know, 20 feet or something, some huge amount of space. So I'm saying that that was 1980. So I was not being successful then. Right. So within a few years, you weren't yeah. the only astrology software company, and you started having competition. Right. One of the things I did when I first began to do astrology is call Rob Hand, who was a friend of mine. 
and say, I'm going to do this software company because he, he had a little Wang computer that he was programming. He wasn't making anything about it. So I don't want to tell you that if you had any ideas about it, we talk about it. So, oh, no, I have no interest in that at all. And then a few years later, without ever having called me, he came out with Astrolabe. And I said, come, you didn't even tell me. He says, oh, I just changed my mind. But anyway, uh, that was upsetting. Mm. But I didn't care. I mean, I sure, think, yeah. Know, I mean, I'm sure things started changing really fast in terms of the adoption of personal computers and starting exactly. to see what they could do and what the potential was. I'm sure a lot of people started getting more serious or more interested in that. And exactly. maybe no, that's true. Sure. Maybe initial perceptions changed. Um, so oh, yeah. so he founds Astrolabe and that becomes another software company. Were there any other major? I know Astro Computing Services, ACS you could um, write them at one point and send away and they would send you charts, like they would calculate charts yeah, oh, for people. Absolutely. They did. That was a but service. That... And yeah, well, Neil Mickelson, Tom Shanks, Pottinger's, there, was, there were other people that were programming astrology. They just were not making those programs available to rank and file people. Okay. So did that precede then matrix like ACS? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Got it. So it was just that it wasn't available for like the personal computer. So people would calculate themselves, but there were companies that you could write to. Right. That you would... get back written in the mail or yeah, written stuff. Got it. So part of the revolution that you were involved with was just making this, um, putting the software in astrologers' hands so they could do it themselves. Exactly. That's exactly all that I did. I wasn't the only person that could. First, that was probably one of the worst ones that uh, Mickelson knew much more than I did about calculations involved in all of this, at least to begin with. They just were not interested in sharing that with others so that others could do that themselves. I was interested in just what you said. You said right. Everyone could have this and should yeah. have this. Their business model was completely different. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And they were also producing printed ephemerises and tables yeah, and things like that. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. So by the mid 1980s, though, certainly Matrix is successful or starts to become successful, maybe perhaps with the further adoption of personal computers throughout the course of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure, sure when everything happened, but absolutely just kept going upward, upward. We became um, a real center. Almost everyone who was anyone back then came to us, either for software or they came to put on 36 different conferences here at our center, mostly astrology, but also Tibetan Buddhism and stuff like that. But uh, I mean, right. you built Jim like Lewis and people like that would come here and Rob Hand, John Townley, Robert Schmidt. Just, you know, all, you know, scores of them. And so we were, uh, you know, you know, I think we were what was happening for a while. Just like everything's like that, right? We had our day. I mean, I think that, that software companies now aren't even what they used to be. 
I don't think a lot of people are using software anymore. They're going online and using Astro Dienst or something like that. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, things have kind of shifted towards the internet after, you know, that took off from the mid 90s forward. But prior to that time in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, before the internet, this was the big thing it was everybody started having a personal computer and exactly. all ast all astrologers wanted to be able to calculate charts, you know, on their own so they could calculate as many as they, they wanted to. And yours was one of the main software companies that really yeah. was, was in the right place at the right time. Exactly. And David Cochran came and worked with us, worked with me for a couple of years, and he went and created cosmic patterns, stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so good friends. And you mentioned you built the Heart Center, which was like a um, an event, and uh, there was a library and like a meeting center, right? Heart Center was established in Ann Arbor, 19, oh, 1972 to 1973, about the first couple of days in January of 73. And it was established as a communion center, a place for people to commune. And then it was moved to Big Rapids in 1980, and it's still there. It's, 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 it's I just, you know, we still keep it up. We, we just, we had, for a while, we had, it had eight bedrooms at one point, and I've taken a lot of them back for this and that. But we had people like we'd have, we had what a, a, a Swami. We had uh, Neil Block, you know Gary Duncan, who, who did some of the jet propulsion laboratory code on the on lunar, lunar Brown's lunar theory. We had uh, Sanskrit. A scholar, and we had the head of the Hare Krishna astrologers. They all lived together. Robert Schmidt lived there for quite a while. And right. So you had this like facility, and just these traveling scholars would come out and stay for a while and talk right. and and do work and exchange ideas. And Schmidt lived there for a couple of years or more. Yeah. Well, that was and that was crucial because I. Um, he in reconstructing his chronology there was this really important turning point where him and his wife ellen black became interested in astrology and became friends with the astrologer john townley and then one day in 1989 townley brought schmidt to a conference that you were hosting a matrix conference i think it was a neo astrology conference a neo astrology conference okay but this and and there was this panel and for some reason, you and Schmidt hit it off and you brought him onto this panel. But what was weird about it is like he wasn't an astrologer at the time. No. He was just he was just this very intelligent person right. that had a really interesting background in like classics and mathematics and philosophy and um, physics and things like that. But this panel had this amazing lineup, which included Michelle Gochlin, Lee Lehman, Robert Hand, Charles Harvey, Alois Trendle. Um, and yourself and possibly others, but that was kind of like Schmidt's introduction to the astrological community. And after that, you and him hit it off. And then he lived there with you at Matrix for a couple of years. I invited him to come and live there hmm. and try to find things for him to do. Uh, but I really didn't care. We had enough money and he didn't do much. Mostly we talked and had meals together for a long time. Uh, 
yeah, yeah. that's how it was. We had a cook that made a cook for everyone. Right, which is amazing because one, so the software company by the late 80s had become so successful that you're able to do things like that. And I think from what I've told by different people, you just had a very generous spirit and you were always interested in hosting these, you know, discussions and stuff and making things available so people could talk and think right. and exchange ideas um, and hosting those conferences and things. But I know that that also, Schmidt, that was where he started researching i think at one point i was told that he was researching a digital encyclopedia project that you wanted to create for the computer and so he was supposed to use some of his language skills to go back and start researching things and that may have been the first time that he started studying some of the older texts and doing like a literature review to see that some of this work on ancient astrology existed but just hadn't been translated yet well, um, i and, think that's not right i, I hmm. think that uh, that sounds very romantic, but that's not really how it was. Okay. To my knowledge, my memory is that I think he did some. You're talking about Astro Index. There's like a yeah. massive thing. Gary Duncan did an enormous amount of just what you're talking about. Robert didn't. He. I don't know whether he was researching Greek and stuff like that. I don't remember any of that. Um, I think that he and I worked on chaos theory for a while. <laughs> he was a mathematician as well. We're trying to do stuff with that. I was trying to find stuff to do with them. So he's just, and, and finally, I think I've told you this before, since he spoke German, I had him translate a book by Theodor Landscheid, who was one of the greatest astrologers I know of, called Children of the Light, about solar, solar activity. And he did translate that whole book. That's a serious thing that he did. Um, Creating a wonderful book in English that still doesn't exist in English anyway. Anyway, I don't know what to do with it exactly. I don't have any particular rights to it, but I, a lot of people want to see it and they're welcome. I, I let them read it and stuff like that. But no, so he did like that. Solar stuff, solar phenomenon, right? It's about solar phenomenon, solar flares, but it's mostly about their effect on creativity in the sciences and the arts. The coincidental discovery of this or that mentally, the time of an intense solar flare. And 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 he came also to my place at Theodore Lynchite, and he and I were good friends. And I think I've told you this before that I think in 1978 I sent him to Germany. He was a Supreme Court Justice of Germany, one of them, and also a climatologist. And I sent him a Commodore Pet his first computer in which he did a lot of his climatology research and stuff like that. He and I were friends. We're not close wow. buddy friends like Schmidt and I were close buddy friends. But he was like my elder and uh, the only astrologer I think that I learned from other than as a friendship, something that I couldn't have learned on my own. Or that he introduced me to Cosmos in his book, uh, Cybernet Cosmic Cybernetics, the whole idea that organisms of any size and every size, in order to cohere and not deteriorate, have to have an information flow. And he skept, sketched out how that might work cosmically with the galaxy and stuff like that. And that was profoundly uh, seminal for me. Uh, so he's, he's 
I loved astrologers. I mean, I met Dane Rudyard and I knew all these people uh, and they were all great. There's nothing against anyone. It's just that the stuff that sparked me came from Landshite. Hmm. And I did a lot of stuff that, that he never did either. I mean, like he did geocentric nodes. I did heliocentric planetary nodes. So it's kind of a difference. I wasn't interested just in the, the Earth view. I wanted to know how all of them worked with each other, since they're a system called the solar system. So that idea. But yeah, with, I can't say, I mean, Bob Schmidt, Robert Schmidt uh, was one of my dearest friends. I don't know if I was one of his dearest friends. I think I was pretty good, but I really loved him. And we would talk not about astrology so much. We talked about astrology tons. But in order enough, I think he went away, said he was an astrologer after he left here. But we talked about work. I think I told you this before. We talked about how we worked and how we used our minds, how we spent our days, exactly what we did. That was our main thing that we talked about. But anyway, uh, I don't think he did a lot of stuff with Astro Index. That sure, sounds nice, yeah. but it, it didn't happen. No, I know he didn't end up doing a lot of work on it, but just the idea that maybe he, at some maybe point during that, that time that he started, became aware that there were older texts that existed that hadn't been translated yet. Because I know, I think it was at one of your conferences, I always hear this famous story of like Rob Hand tells Schmidt that at some point, um, if he's ever not, you know, doing other work, if he's not working for for you, which he was at the time, that he's he told Schmidt that he should come find him and they'll get together and they'll do something together. And then eventually that's what happened in 1992. And Schmidt went up to hand at a conference and said, I'm free, like let's collaborate on something. And then the rest was history and they created Project Hindsight. Um but you played a really crucial role because it seems like with the success of um, Matrix and the software in the late nine, late eighties and early nineties, that you were hosting a lot of events and you were very much at the center of a lot of like community um, yeah. efforts and a lot of things and a lot of important astrological discussions were taking place under the auspices of Matrix and some of the related things. Yeah, I mean, uh, and he was here for years, a couple of years at least. Oh, there was endless, endless meals that we shared every day. Yeah, um, actually, I realized after we did that interview last month about Schmidt, I realized it was your, what you created there with the Heart Center and having that ability for like traveling scholars to come and stay and do research and talk and exchange ideas. That was actually then implanted and was the blueprint for the vision that Schmidt and his wife Ellen later had for Project Hindsight because they always talked about wanting to have the ability to host traveling scholars at this big house that they had inherited. And that, in fact, ended up being what I benefited from when I ended up moving there and living there was a similar sort of thing for about two years. Um, but I didn't realize until last month and talking to you that it was actually what you had created with the Heart Center and with Matrix that they originally got the idea from in some sense or, yeah, or the, the inspiration that from. Yeah, that's true. That I think that they liked. But, but for instance, we had uh, meals, lunch every day, free. And every Friday night, we opened it up to all employees and their families. Big meal, really, really good meals. And, and 
brought in people from the, the town, lawyers or whatever, just were friends. So I think they, but the difference was is that we were fueled by quite a lot of cash in order to do that. I, and, I, and I think they took away from, it was quite a wonderful place to be at. And I think you took away from that, what you said, and they had the perfect house down there to do it. I just don't think they had enough uh, flow of money to do it. Sure, um, for sure. Um, either that or so, maybe they weren't good at doing it. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty, fr pretty friendly. I, I brought everyone that I could. Yeah, well, and let's talk about it a little bit because prior to, I know in like the 70s and earlier, I'm told often that the AFA was like one of the only games in town in terms of major astrological organizations that was hosting conferences and stuff. But then it seems like you were hosting essentially conferences with Matrix by the late, by the mid to late 80s. And but small, that... smaller ones. We weren't trying to do these big ballroom things that you act as, or we had maybe 20 or 30 astrologers there. Mostly, okay. I was mostly we didn't care. Most of our conferences were for the, the people that were there to speak. They weren't mm. really for the general public. We didn't think, we let people come, but they had to take care of themselves. I couldn't put them up uh, or feed them all. So mostly that's the difference. And since instead of putting on one for the whole astrology community, we just had this one for the speakers, came out of ACT. We just wanted the speakers to get together and be able to talk about what they loved and were interested in. And if someone else wanted to witness it, that's great, but we didn't we didn't cater to that. And what did ACT stand for originally again? Astrological Conference on Techniques. On Techniques. Okay. So those are the early ones you're talking about from like 1980 circa. And then exactly. eventually you did um, a series called Neo-Astrology Conferences, or was that just one conference? No, there were uh, two two neo-astrology conferences uh, that were just part of the same stuff. That, that wasn't really for people. Those were the people that you rattled off, right? You said were there at the table. There weren't a lot of people there witnessing it. Yeah, well, it's... That's the difference. I mean, those are some of the leaders. I mean, that's a pretty... Um notable list the one i yeah. the one conference in 89 that i know about which was like michelle goklin lee lehman yeah. robert hand charles harvey alois trendle and alois trendle was the founder of astro deinst exactly. which i know eventually in the mid to late 1990s became a major um website and one of the first websites that offered chart calculations for free and now in retrospect that that has been a huge shift and that's been a major thing in the community over the past 20 years or so, exactly. but Astro Deanst was formed earlier in the 80s and was already doing, what was it, like mail order chart calculation and report writer services or something. So that's probably why he was at that conference. They were like, no, I have no idea why he was at conference other than he was doing it. They were kind of like Astro Computing Services, but they were more like a hippie version of it or a uh, a more open version, more sharing, sharing lots of stuff. Right. Uh, and it, it wasn't that Astro Computing Service or whatever didn't share, it just, just wasn't in the, in, the, in the wind or in the mind back then. People didn't yeah, do that. They just ran businesses. I think uh, Trindle, you know, was, you know, not a, 
not fully open, but pretty more open sharing with other people. And so, uh, yeah, I think that that's a wonderful thing. He's a very nice person uh, and a lot of fun to be with. Uh, and he's done really wonderful stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um... Okay, so that brings us to the early to mid 90s. And then at some point, the internet comes in um, from like the mid 90s, mid 90s forward, it starts becoming popular and starts becoming widely adopted. Right. Um, at some point, there must have been a shift from uh, like, when you were selling the program in the late 80s and early 90s, you were probably sending it out on a bunch of floppy disks, right? Yeah. Do you know like how many, it wasn't just on, was it on like one floppy disk or did you have to send out like a stack of disks for the program? Well, it depends on how many programs you got or how how, how much database was there at all. It, in, I had email in 1979. Mm -hmm. I should tell you something. And so I was a pioneer. Aside from matrix isn't the only thing that I did. I also did something that's much bigger money-wise, which was, uh, it, you know, I still, I still have allmusic.com all is still the largest music database in the world with hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Like I think there's 95,000 biographies of musicians and, and, and producers and directors and stuff like that. And also I, I started, um, one of the two largest databases for film and movies in the world called allmovie.com did the same for games. And I also did all by myself, the largest rock and roll database of rock and roll concert posters, not the stuff you, not the cheap stuff you see you buy for memorabilia, but actual ones that were for a concert. And I, you know, I personally photographed what 33,000 important, expensive posters, and stuff like that. So I'm saying there's a whole other thing going on that we're not talking about. And what I'm saying is CompuServe, first of all, I did 110 um, web pages for Microsoft on, new, on the new age. What do you mean? That means that I did, we have you know, astrology, tarot, 110 different websites for them, part of their MSN, which didn't last too long. And also on CompuServe, I had film and movie databases early on, before anybody, we had, before there was the World Wide Web, we were fielding large quantities of data on what's called gopher sites. Gopher sites preceded the World Wide Web. We were a major player in that. So at the same time with this astrology stuff continued, I was also pioneering music and film. I'm an archivist of popular culture, is what they call me. Right, so, an arch archivist. I'm an archivist. And in, in the music database, I had I moved it to Ann Arbor, Michigan, finally, and took up two floors of a very expensive building. And I had 150 full-time employees and 500 to 700 freelance writers that worked for us. For just the music 
site? Music and film. Okay. Music and film. And that mm -hmm. ended up being more lucrative than the astrology software company? Oh, yeah. So it wasn't that like the astrology software company and its success was able to help you fund other things. No, it, it did. Was... Astrology helped fund all music guide, AMG. Helped allow it to grow into something important. In fact, some of the employees at Matrix used to say, because I was diverting funds to try to nurse this music and film database, it's like Michael's pouring money down a rat hole. They didn't like it. But yet it turned out to be certainly the, the most important public thing that, that I ever did. Um, right. I think some people in retrospect now have taken great interest in that and some of your collections were actually uh, are now were incorporated into university collections or donated to them absolutely i have very little left almost everything's at major universities the bentley historical library for university of michigan illinois uh illinois university also there, and then out in uh, San Francisco, all these different ones. And I think we didn't talk about, uh, we started to talk about it, is that the Hart Center Astrological Library, certainly one of the largest libraries on astrology ever produced, and then was all was donated to the University of Illinois. It took like a, a li allied van lines huge moving truck to move it, plus a UPS size truck just to move my papers and correspondence and stuff. All of that stuff is safely in the hands of any researchers that want to play with it. Another copy of, of some of my material at Bentley Historical Library and another one's out in a poster databases in two places. I, I think I mentioned the, the art that, the Benton art we produced here in New York at the Bruben Museum. So I think I've been a good curator and steward and made sure that all of this work that I did is now available to everyone. These are all donations. I didn't get any money for any of that. Uh, it, it's there for researchers, PhD people, dissertation people, or whatever, to do whatever they want with. So I have, what do I have left? Not much, just the kind of stuff I'm going to send to you and, a, and, a, and maybe another person. All the all these interviews, this astrology stuff, you're going to be one of the stewards of that uh, soon, as soon as I can get it all together. Still waiting for stuff to come back to me. I'm not holding it up. So, yeah, I, and I think some of your astrology books were also donated to Genzart and the Cayley Institute out in Washington and Olympia, right? I gave her all. She came and took away a van load of duplicates. Okay, nice. And and that's now a big, huge astrological library in Olympia. Um, so some of that, some of your collection then sort of like lives on in different places through through that. And, and I other sent places. some to, to Philip Gray, Graves in the UK. Okay, which and he has to have the biggest astrology collection in the world at this point. Um, Philip no Graves. No idea. Uh, yeah. I um, think that doubt that he has. The ability to house what I housed. Sure, right. I would had a forty foot, forty foot by twenty foot. Um, well, you've seen pictures of it. 
Yeah, if you have any pictures, I I have before, but if you have any, you could send me. Maybe I could splice some pictures in now into the video at this point. If you haven't seen it, it was huge. I don't think Philip has anything, but maybe he does because I, I, no, he's a great guy. I just don't know that he has that much stuff. But you could ask him. Sure. Ask him, does he think that he does? Okay. More power Um, to him. So eventually things started to shift. We have the rise of the internet by the late 90s and computerized software programs. Astrology software still becomes, um, is still used even to this day. We have started to see more of a shift towards using either phone apps or to using website-based software programs, but there are still other programs that exist. Um, Matrix is Matrix is something you eventually moved on from and right. sold the company, right? David and Faye Cochran, Cosmic okay. Patterns. Yep. Okay. But we used to um, work here. He and I were friends. Okay. Um, so some of that lives on, and I know the Matrix website is still there and still has some of the old stuff on it from maybe before before you sold it. Well, and also one of the sites that I built and then sold to David was called astrologyland.com. And on that site is, is a very nice free chart wheel. It does Helio and Geo. And if you've never seen it, you should go look at it. Very okay. pretty. Very, very nice looking chart. Yeah, that is cool. So that's at astrologyland.com. Yep. And there's a lot of other stuff there too. But um, if somebody needs a chart, they can get it there. And I think they're as nice as any other chart that I know of. It's free. Yeah. Okay, so um, bringing things full circle in terms of your career in astrology as an astrologer, as well as specifically um, being at the forefront of the rise of astrology on personal computers and astrology software programs, I guess we started to talk about um, some of the parallels between that time period and today with some of the things that are emerging with AI. Are there any other core lessons or important historical reflections from that shift to personal computers and to astrologers starting to use software that you think are important or notable for people to to understand and know about what that was like? I don't really understand what you're asking, unless you want me to go through the whole thing again, which we don't. No, I guess I'm just trying to think about, um, so maybe- And I'm still thinking, I'm still- I just you know just published today on Facebook. I, I publish a blog every day on Facebook, often astrology. I'm talking about gravitational. There's some recent events in terms of gravitational waves, cosmically, in the news now. I was doing this, talking about this many many years ago, decades ago. Uh, the whole idea that gravitational radiation, unlike electromagnetic light waves, light waves are bipolar, it means they oscillate like that. But gravity waves are quadrupolar, it means they oscillate like this, but also like that. And decades and decades ago, astronomers said that gravitational gravity waves, which they call the weak force because they're so delicate and subtle, would take an antenna. So the antenna for gravity waves would be a cross. They said that somebody said, an astronomer said, 
It would take a cross antenna the size of the solar system to be able to interpret gravitational radiation. It occurred to me, well, solar, the planets and the sun create those crosses all the time. So that a very important part of my helio work, which I just wrote about today online on Facebook, is, and this ties in with Landshed again, the whole idea of cybernetics, that any large-scale system, any system, whether it's a machine or living, in order to cohere, to have coherence, not to decay, fail, has to have a stream of information uh, keeping it alive. And so, so I, I just wrote about that again. So I haven't stopped thinking about what was important. It's just a question of who am I speaking to? To whom am I speaking? I don't know. Astrologers aren't that interested in what I've done. I mean, some of them are interested, but not mostly. They're another, and you must know this from your work. Even the kind of work that you and the language people did, what do you call that anyway? What do you call the whole group of you that does ancient languages? Um, just to the revival of tradition of interest in ancient astrology or traditional astrology, I guess is called is what it's called. Okay, well then you must know by now that not everyone in astrology is interested in that. Right, sure. Right. And so it's the same way with a lot of my research and a lot of the things I developed. So what do you do about that? You, you just do it for yourself because you're interested in it and you can't count on anyone else uh, witnessing it or certainly on many of the techniques I developed, I've never had anyone come and talk to me that was the least bit challenging, that they, that they knew learned enough about, say, heliocentrics, enough to make me learn with them. Right? And I'm sure you have something similar on some things you've done. I just say, what do we do with that in our life? And I think that we we do this for ourselves. And we don't do it to make money. And we don't do it. I mean, we could be nice if we could make money. Um, we do it because we're interested in it. And so I don't know where astrology is going now. And since I know it's going out of computers, going on you know, real time on the web, um, because I think it's Software companies must be struggling. Uh, I lived in a happy time, a lot of money, a lot of interest, but you know it fades too. Everything does. We're going to grow old and die. Uh, so what do we leave? Good question. Uh, so do, what do I, else do I have to say about what's going on? Only that I'm interested in what I'm interested in, and it's still astrology, but it's more. Uh, spiritual stuff, which I always have been. I'm particularly interested in Dharma because Dharma is so deep-seated and so important. Um, but there's not many people interested in that either. Not really. Well, I think it's really, <clears throat> it's it's striking and impressive and um, encouraging that you were able to make a life doing, following things that you're interested in and passionate about and that you were able to have that support you and also be able to make major positive contributions to the astrological community, as well as other communities through that work and through those efforts. So um, exactly. 
Yeah, that, I think that, a... that was that was intentional in the sense that what I didn't do is take the road less traveled by. I mean, that's the what I did do. Did not go to college. I mean, actually, I went to the University of Michigan for three weeks and decided it was just like high school. Uh, I went where I wanted to go, and I made my living doing things I loved. I'm also a very skilled photographer of nature. Uh, stuff like that. So I made I insisted, but what you might not know is it took a long time for any of the things that I loved and was interested in to make any money. Right. It wasn't that you got into it and that you knew like this was going to be the thing and this was no. going to make you lots of money. It was just that those were your interests and you wanted to follow what you love doing and that's what you did. Yeah. No matter what. Mm-hmm. It's going to go whether it's successful or not for a long time, it wasn't successful. And we lived on a shoestring and pretty happy anyway, you know, I have four kids and eight grandkids. Um, and I have enough money to get to the end of my life, which isn't that far away. So I don't have a lot of money, uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I could not have, I did go to work for NBC for a while as a senior consultant in astrology. I have, you know, astrology.com or whatever was theirs. I don't know where it is now. And I worked, I worked for them and found out I actually could work for them just fine. Just, you know wasn't so bad as I thought, taking direction, right? Still not what I like to do. Sure. Rather, rather lead. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that uh, it seemed like the community, while you were at the sort of one of the center points of it, it seems like you did a lot of good um, during that period. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of people are, are thankful of that. So thanks a lot for your, your efforts and your contributions. Well, I appreciate um, you saying that. Yeah. To me, it was was wonderful. I mean, I met a lot of great people. John Townley is an incredible person. All of these, all these wonderful people. Michelle Gokelin was here many times. All these people. Uh, Robert Schmidt, as I said, a very close friend. Uh, Noel Till and I were close friends. Used to call me his little leprechaun. That's a good... He was out. He was outstanding in our field because he was six foot six or whatever it was. Right. Yeah, he was a big man. So, for people that want to follow your work or your current writings or get in touch with you, it seems like your Facebook page is where you write pretty regularly at this point. Different blog posts. Oh well, yeah, there's that, but mostly I have a whole website called SpiritGrooves.net or .com, and that has. Uh, Think three hundred and some free ebooks, not all on astrology. Three hundred of them are on posters, but mostly maybe this 50, 50 or so free books on all the astrology that I've done for the downloading. I don't charge for anything. So if, sometime if you want to make this, put that on the screen or something, so people can. Yeah, find it. I'm trying to see if this is the right website. It says. DharmaGrooves.com, is that correct? It's a boat. They're both they both go to the same place. It should should be a dark blue. Yeah, it? that's it. You you got it. Okay. I see that on to the left it says free ebooks. Right. Yeah, those are okay. all astrology books that are free. Got it. 
So this is where some of the books that you mentioned are are all located. Of all of them. Nice. There are hundreds of them, but even in astrology, there's a whole whole big bunch. So there's the local space one. There's exactly. the Tibet Tibetan astrology one. Exactly. And I'm sure that is the heliocentric one up here too. Yeah, well, there's still one's called Dharma chart, Karma chart, and the other's called Star types. You, you pass them, but Star types, visual ephemeris. No, that's something else. Okay, that's just a visual ephemeris. Oh, there it is. Star types, yeah. life path yeah. path partners. Got it. Yep, life life path partners. It's about relationships using heliocentric astrology for bringing people together in a relationship. Got it. Okay. Um, and then I don't know if this website is still active, but you also have michaelearlywine.com, right? It's still there. Just a bunch of uh, other stuff, you know, different stories of Ann Arbor, stories of music, stories of this and that, just for people who haven't had enough, that'll give you more than enough. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today and sharing your story with me and helping me to document some of this oral history. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I thank you for doing it. And I, I think you're doing an excellent job. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. 
you can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.